Welcome, everybody. If you're here for our seminar on the IRA, putting the Inflation Reduction Act into action, then you're in the right place. Good job. Um, so this is with myself and Kristen Eberhardt of Rewiring America. So I'm going to start uh, talking about the home electrification and efficiency opportunities from the IRA, and then Kristen's going to talk about some other aspects. Uh, you can, if you're interested in our slides, we have some slides that you guys can potentially use uh, for your own presentations at cclusa.org slash IRA-homeowners. That will look uh, pretty similar to what I'm using today. So I am Dana Nucitelli, uh, CCL Research Coordinator, and I'm an environmental scientist and a climate journalist currently writing for Yale Climate Connections. So here's what I'm going to talk about uh, for the next half hour or so, uh, just some general benefits of electrifying our homes, and then I'll go through the various technologies uh, that are incentivized in the Inflation Reduction Act, heat pump space heaters, heat pump water heaters, electric stoves, home weatherization, electric vehicles, and rooftop solar panels and batteries. So just in general, uh, this is one of our policy areas at CCL, building electrification and efficiency, uh, which is of course important because by upgrading our homes and buildings to electric and making them more energy efficient, we can save money and eliminate a major source of carbon and indoor air pollution. Uh, we've got some nice training pages that we put together on the topic at cclusa.org slash building dash electrification dash training for the introductory training page and for the advanced training page you just swap out the training for advanced at the end of that url uh, so there's some good reasons to electrify your home uh, you can save money uh, according to rewiring america American households would save $1,800 per year on average by going fully electric, um, largely from putting on solar panels, which then save on your electric bills. Uh, you also benefit your health because burning fossil fuels indoors is not healthy. It's a major source of health problems, in particular childhood asthma. And of course, it's good for the climate because we're trying to transition away from fossil fuels because fossil fuel burning, including in buildings, is a major source of climate pollution. Uh, another nice benefit is that electricity prices are much more stable than fossil fuel prices. So here you can see a chart of average electricity prices in the United States since 2000. Uh, you can see very, very stable, not a whole lot of change. Uh, you can see our kind of inflationary period right here and electricity prices did go up, but not by too terribly much. Uh, conversely, here is what natural gas prices have looked like uh, over the same period. Uh, you can see much larger spikes in their uh, periodic prices. Uh, you can see a much bigger impact from inflation during that same period right here. Uh, in fact, fossil fuels are a big contributor often to inflation because of those unstable prices and because they're currently such a big part of our economy. And there's gasoline prices in the brown here. Uh, very similar story, very, very unstable, uh, spiking all over the place, including here's that inflationary period where they just went through the roof. Um, so anytime you can transition from a fossil fuel car to an electric car, then you're getting much more stable uh, fuel prices in your vehicle. And if you can transition from fossil fuel appliances in your home to electric appliances, then your utility bills, uh, your electric bill will be much more stable than your gas bill. 
So, of course, we got the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, signed into law a little over a year ago. Um, so it has these incentives to electrify our vehicles, uh, which, according to, are based on current average gasoline prices, current average electricity prices over the past decade, uh, and the average amount that people drive. Uh, transitioning from a fuel uh, a gasoline car to an EV will save people about $1,000 per year in fuel costs. Uh, also, we get savings a couple hundred dollars per year in electricity costs by uh, electrifying our home appliances. And so the IRA has rebates and tax credits to incentivize those transitions. Uh, so this is a nice artistic depiction of all of those incentives, uh, tax credits and rebates by this uh, great infographic artist, Nicole Kilner. Uh, available on her website. I think we'll get a link here in the chat, uh, linking to where you can find this on her website. Uh, it's a really nice visual illustration. Uh, I think it would probably be good uh, potentially for a tabling material to uh, grab people's attention, draw their uh, attention, and educate, give them the give you guys the opportunity to educate them about all of these different incentives available uh, under the Inflation Reduction Act for people to electrify their homes and make them more efficient. And we'll be going all through all those here uh, in the coming minutes here. And then Rewiring America has this great IRA savings calculator. Uh, we have a short URL that goes over there, cclusa.org slash IRA-calc. Uh, so basically how it works is you put in some information, your zip code, homeowner status, household income, tax filing status, and household size. And then it will tell you all of the different incentives that you qualify for whether they are tax credits or upfront discounts, how large they are and when they will become available or if they are available now. So we're gonna go through all of those uh, individually here as well, but that's just a really great resource. It's a great place to direct people to, to educate them about what uh, financial incentives are available to them. So in general, these fall into two different buckets. We have the tax credits buckets, uh, which is currently available. And then we have the upfront rebates bucket, which will be becoming available uh, at some point next year. And I'll talk more about that. But first, let's touch on the tax credits. Uh, they are currently available. Uh, the way you apply them is when you do your uh, annual tax filing the following year, uh, then you basically check off all of the uh, electrification um, qualifying things that you did. And then you get that much money off of your taxes. Most of these tax credits are not refundable, uh, meaning that if you have uh, a lower uh, tax liability than the size of the rebate, then you can only uh, you know, take off what you owe. Uh, so for example, if you owe $2,000 in taxes and you have a $5,000 tax credit, you can only use the $2,000 uh, of it. But many of these tax credits reset every year, so you can use part of it you know, for one upgrade one year and for another upgrade another year, for example. And we'll talk about that as more some more as well. Uh, so there are kind of generally three categories of tax credits. There is the ener energy efficiency and home improvement tax credit, which is th a 30% tax credit up to $2,000 per year for heat pump space heaters and heat pump water heaters, uh, up to $1,200 per year for other upgrades, uh, generally weatherization, and that resets every year. Uh, so you can apply it uh, every year that you do some of these upgrades. Then there's the solar and battery storage tax credit, which is uh, also 30% of the cost of the upgrade, 
this one actually can carry over. So if you have like a larger tax credit than your tax liability, you can keep applying it in future years. Talk some more about this one later on. And then there's also the electric vehicle tax credit, which we'll go into in more detail as well. Then there are the upfront rebates, which everybody is very excited about and very anxious to for, for those to become available. Uh, unfortunately, it's taking some time for the Department of Energy and the state energy offices to get those programs up and running because it's all very complicated. Uh, figuring out like how people are going to prove that they qualify for these rebates uh, and things like that. So uh, each state is going to roll them out as quickly as they can. Um, we're looking at probably somewhere around mid-2024 when the first states are going to start finally rolling these out. Um, generally, states with uh, already very well-staffed uh, energy offices, like California, for example, are probably going to be the first ones because they already have the staffing ready to put these programs together, whereas some other states uh, without very large departments of uh, energy uh, or energy, uh, uh, yeah, energy departments, they kind of had to hire staff to figure out how to do this first, and so that's going to take uh, longer for certain states. So the first ones, hopefully in the next six months or so, and then uh, more states will keep rolling them out into going into 2025. So it's going to take some time. Uh, everybody wants to see these, but uh, the states are working as fast as they can, I'm sure. So uh, in these upfront rebates, there are basically two programs that qualify. Um, so there's first the High Efficiency Electric Home Rebate Act, uh, which I call HERA, um, which it has rebates up to $14,000 per household for low-income and middle-income households. Uh, so it will, up, uh, it will cover 100% of these electrification updates uh, up to $14,000 per household for low-income households, which are those that are under 80% of the local median income, and it covers those uh, upgrades 50% of the cost for middle-income households, which are those that are between 80% and 150% of the local median income, which again, the easiest way to figure out where you fall in that local median income range is to go to the Rewiring America IRA calculator, and it's got that already built in for you. So it's a lot easier than having to worry about figuring out like what what where do I fall in my uh, my area's uh, local median income range. And then there's a, a second program called the Homeowner Managing Energy Savings Homes uh, Rebates for home energy efficiency savings, uh, which are probably more relevant for high income households that don't qualify for HERA um, because you can't use both, um, or at least you can't uh, yeah you can't uh, be double dipping there. So um, we'll talk more about that program in a little bit here. Uh, so in general, this is a nice chart from the U.S. Energy Information Administration showing where uh, the sources of energy use and especially uh, pointing out what's used by uh, what our fossil fuels comes from in our homes. Uh, you can see the two big bars are space heating and water heating. And uh, you can see space heating, we have some comes from electricity, but a lot comes from natural gas and some other fossil fuels. Uh, water heating similar, we have a fair amount of electric water heaters, heaters already, the dark blue, but then the light blue, we have lots of natural gas water heating and a little bit of other fossil fuels as well. So those are kind of the areas where we can get the biggest bang from our buck for electrifying them because they both are the most uh, energy intensive in homes, and they have the most fossil uh, fuel use in American homes. 
So the good news is we have one technology that very efficiently, uh, efficiently tackles both home uh, space and water heating needs, and that is, of course, the heat pump which a heat pump uses electricity to move heat basically from one place to another. Uh, even though it's called a heat pump, it both heats and cools uh, buildings. And uh, they are very, very efficient, three to five times more efficient than most current fossil fuel heating systems, uh, basically because it's easier to move heat around than it is to generate it by burning stuff. And also when you burn stuff, you tend to lose heat to the surrounding environment, which is very inefficient. So because heat pumps are so efficient, they save energy and reduce emissions. Uh, even with today's electric grid, even though uh, we have fossil fuels on the electric grid, we often get this question like, you know, we still have some coal, we still have gas uh, that we use to generate some of our electricity. So is it actually still better to transition from uh, a gas heater, for example, to a heat pump heater? And the answer is on, on, in, very, in the very vast majority of cases, yes, because heat pumps are so energy efficient. Uh, it still is a reduction in uh, climate pollution if you make that transition. And in most cases, they reduce our energy bills. You can see a heat pump space heater uh, compared to natural gas furnaces, electric furnaces, and so on. Uh, how much uh, on average Americans will save. Uh, it's going to vary from location to location depending on local electricity prices and local gas prices or other fossil fuel prices, of course, but it's kind of the average um, so on average, they are uh, going to save money compared to natural gas furnaces and certainly compared to other less efficient uh, heating methods. And then people often ask, um, since they are, you know, moving heat from one space to the other, what if it's really cold out and there's, you know, not much heat, are they still going to work? Uh, the answer is yes, even when temperatures are very cold, there is still some heat in the surrounding air. Uh, there's also uh, other types of heat pumps, like ground source heat pumps that actually take heat out of the ground, for example. Although in the U.S., most of the use, they're called air-to-air, -air, so they're taking heat from the air in one spot and moving it to the, uh, to the air in another spot. Um, so even when the air is very cold, there is some heat, and so heat pumps still work. Uh, Mitsubishi has one unit currently that works down to negative 13 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, there's a program where U.S. companies are developing heat pumps that'll work down to negative 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, in our Nordic countries, 60% uh, of homes in Norway, 43% in Sweden, and 41% in Finland have heat pumps. And those are very cold countries, so that's kind of a proof of concept, uh, real-world examples that heat pumps do work in cold climates. And uh, the state of Maine, which is also quite a cold state, uh, is doing a big push to install heat pumps and replace their existing fossil fuel heating systems. So they installed 27,000 heat pumps in 2021, which is 5% of the homes in the states. And they're aiming to get up to 100,000 heat pumps installed by 2025. So good job, Maine, way to get those heat pumps uh, installed. So uh, then in the Inflation Reduction Act, once the rebates become available starting in 2024, uh, there will be an up to $8,000 uh, upfront discount for home uh, space heating heat pumps. Again, that's going to be 100% covered uh, for low-income households up to $8,000 and 50% coverage for middle-income households up to $8,000. And there is also currently a tax credit available. Uh, I'm going to be listing the section of the IRS, uh, the tax code that uh, these tax credits come from, but you don't need to know that information. It just kind of helps me distinguish between the different tax credits. 
uh, but there is a 30% tax credit up to $2,000. Uh, so, for example, if you were to install a $6,000 heat pump, you would get a $2,000 tax credit for it, and that is already available. So you can at least take advantage of the tax credit, and then pretty soon, uh, hopefully relatively soon, we'll have those upfront rebates available as well for low- and middle-income households. And then there's heat pump water heaters, uh, which work the same way as our heat pump space heaters, taking heat generally from uh, the surrounding air moving it into our water heater and heating up the water. Uh, again, very efficient, two to three times more efficient than most current water heating systems, uh, which is gonna translate into $100 per year in energy savings for an average household uh, compared to fossil fueled uh, water heaters. Again, we've got uh, the uh, HERA upfront discount coming in 2024 or so. Uh, so that will be up to $1,750 for a heat pump uh, water heater. Again, 100% uh, coverage up to that amount for low-income households and 50% coverage up to that amount for middle-income households. And that same tax credit of 30% up to $2,000 is now available for heat pump water heaters. Uh, again, that will reset every year. So for example, if you want to upgrade both your home heating system and your water heating system, uh, you're going to uh, use up that tax credit for your home space heating system because uh, those are pretty costly. So that's going to be $2,000. So if you also want to upgrade your water heater, like you can do it at the same time. Um, I'm not going to discourage people from doing that. But if you were to wait to the next year, then the tax credit would reset. And then you could use the tax credit again for your, uh, your heat pump water heater. And then we've got electric stoves. Uh, so there's two kinds of electric stoves. There's the traditional ones that uh, heat up the metal elements uh, like a toaster does. And then there's induction stoves, which are very cool. Uh, they transfer energy to the pots uh, or the pan using a magnetic field. Uh, they are both much more efficient than gas stoves are, uh, much more energy efficient. Uh, induction has the benefits of being very, very fast, uh, heats things very, very accurately. It's also very safe because the, the top of the surface uh, doesn't get very hot. Uh, whereas uh, if you're heating up a heat element in a transition uh, trans, uh, traditional uh, stove, then that does get very hot. So there's that one difference, really. Uh, and induction stoves are a bit more efficient than tra traditional electric resistant stoves. But they are both much more efficient than gas stoves, which lose a lot of heat because you've got the burner going right there. And then some of that heat gets dissipated into the surrounding air instead of going into your your uh, pots or pans, uh, and they're also, the electric versions are much healthier because you're not pumping methane gas into your kitchen right where you're breathing. So there is less indoor air pollution, which is a very big benefit of all kinds of electric stoves. Uh, especially true if you have kids, uh, there's been a variety of studies uh, finding that gas stoves are particularly bad for kids' health, uh, in particular causing childhood asthma um, and so it's a good idea, if possible, if you have kids, especially to replace any gas stoves with some sort of electric stove when possible. So again, uh, there are the upfront discounts that will be available, uh, hopefully starting next year for electric stoves. Uh, they don't have tax credits, but they do have these upfront rebates coming. So that will be up to $840 for an electric stove, either electric resistance or induction, 100% uh, coverage again for the low-income households up to $840 and 50% coverage for middle-income households up to $840. 
once the states make those rebates available. And then another cool technology is heat pump clothes dryers. Uh, so those will have pretty much the same uh, uh, incentives as our induction stoves and electric stoves. Uh, it's going to be an $840 upfront discount, uh, no tax credits. Uh, so heat pump clothes dryers are very cool because, again, they're super, super efficient, uh, much more energy efficient than other types, uh, either electric or uh, most other. So we have basically in the United States, about 80% of our current clothes dryers are electric resistance heating. So again, they just heat up an element and that's how they get the hot air in the clothes dryer or the other 20%, uh, most of them are using natural gas uh, to, to dry the clothes and to heat the air. So uh, heat pump clothes dryers are much more efficient than both of those. And they have uh, another cool benefit that they don't require any outside venting of air. Um, just because of the, the way they're engineered. And so that kind of reduces one more way for uh, air to leak outside of your house. And so it makes your home more uh, weather is weather resistance. Um, so again, 100% coverage for your low income households up to $840 and 50% for middle income households up to $840 once those rebates come into effect. So that's your electrification. And then there's also home weatherization. Uh, which is a bunch of steps you can take to reduce the amount of energy required to heat and cool your home. Uh, so it involves things like air sealing, uh, insulation, upgrading your doors and windows so they're less leaky, uh, and ventilation improvements. Uh, so generally ways to make it so that less air is leaking out of your house. Uh, a good way to figure out the best ways to uh, the best steps you can take to weatherize your home is to get a home energy audit where some expert will come in and find the leakiest areas and tell you like where you can get the most bang for your buck. Uh, the nice thing is there is also in the Inflation Reduction Act a 30% tax credit for home energy audits up to $150. So for example, if you have an expert come in and do a home energy audit and it costs $450, then you get a tax credit for $150 back. And it's just generally a good idea to weatherize your home. Up to 20% of the money spent on home energy by average American households is wasted just from air leaking uh, out of the house. Uh, so as a result, weatherizing homes reduces energy waste and it reduces energy bills. Uh, it's especially true for low-income households uh, that tend to be older, leakier homes. Uh, so they can save up to 35% on their energy bills through weatherization projects. So again, we're going to have those upfront discounts for insulation, for air sealing, and for ventilation upgrades uh, up to $1,600. Uh, again, 100% coverage for low-income households, 50% for middle-income households, up to $1,600 once those rebates become available. But there is currently a tax credit already available. Uh, again, it's one that resets every year, and it is up to $1,200 per year, 30% off, or 30% tax credit for uh, $150 if you do the home energy audit, as I mentioned. Then there's also $1,200 for any insulation and air sealing upgrades that you do. And then you can get $250 per door, uh, upgrading your doors up to two doors, and $600 for upgrading your windows each year. Again, that resets every year. So you can, for example, one year do $1,200 and uh, or get the tax credit for $1,200 for insulating uh, and improving your insulation and air sealing. And then the next year you can upgrade your windows and your doors and so on uh, and spread it out if you so want, or you can just do it all at once uh, if you can afford that. And uh, there, and then we have, and that was uh, from our HERA. There's also the HOMES uh, program that I mentioned. 
so the homes program, basically you have to figure out if you're gonna do a big uh, home energy efficiency project upgrades, a bunch of upgrades to your home, then how much is that going to improve your home energy efficiency? So you can either do that by having a contractor come in and model it or take some measurements. And in this program, if you save uh, more than 35% uh, energy savings in your home, then you can get uh, a rebate of whatever's less between $4,000 or 50% of your project costs. And then the rebate goes down if you save, uh, if your energy savings increases by less, as you can see here. Uh, if you are a low-income household and uh, you could do this uh, instead of doing the HEHRA, for example, then you can still get these rebates and they're actually doubled up to 80% of the project costs. So there are options there, but I think mostly the homes, uh, this Homes React uh, program is probably going to be mostly used by high-income households that don't qualify for the low and middle-income household rebates that were previously discussed. And then we got the rather complicated electric vehicle tax credits. Um, so just in general, EVs are great. They're more efficient than gasoline cars, and they save money. Uh, there's something like 40% of the fuel cost per mile as a gasoline car, again, depending on your local gasoline prices and local electricity prices, uh, and also about one half the maintenance cost, as we're seeing from, for example, uh, a lot of rental agencies that are renting out um, Electric cars, they're seeing the maintenance cost of those electric cars are much less than the maintenance cost of the gasoline cars in their fleets. And of course, they're better for the, our health and for the environment because they don't have any direct tailpipe pollution. Uh, so we're not breathing any exhaust from electric cars. They have much lower lifetime greenhouse gas emissions than gasoline cars. Uh, we do have to do mining for battery components like lithium. People often ask, well, you know, these cars, they have these batteries with all these metals and we have to do this mining for things like lithium and cobalt. And isn't that an environmental problem? And certainly that does have an environmental impact. Uh, however, for a battery, just mining the, the metal, the, the minerals once, uh, whereas for a gasoline powered car, you have to drill for oil and refine that oil and then send it out as gasoline, which just gets burned in the car. And then you have to drill for more oil, refine it again, send it out, burn it into the car. And so that is a, an unending process, whereas, you know, the mining for the battery for the electric car just happens once. And so overall, the environmental footprint of the electric car is still much less than the gasoline powered car. I should, of course, also mention the best thing to do is to just drive less. Uh, and you know, do steps like using public transportation and walking and biking. But if you're going to drive, then electric cars are the way to go. Uh, and so there's this nice analysis by the Union of Concerned Scientists uh, where they looked at every region, uh, the, the power grid mix in each region, and then uh, figured out the miles per gallon equivalent of driving an electric car in each region. Uh, so you can see the average around the country of driving an electric car is equivalent to 91 miles per gallon. Uh, lots of regions around the world are, or around the country are over 100 miles per gallon. Uh, really every uh, region and every state, um, the driving an electric car is still equivalent to driving a very, very efficient gasoline car at the very least. Um, so pretty much everywhere you are, it's better to have an EV than a gasoline powered car in terms of climate pollution. So let's talk about those tax credits. Uh, they are up to $7,500 for new EVs, as long as those EVs are first assembled in North America. And then you have to meet some other criteria. The car has to, for a car, it has to cost uh, $55,000 or less. Vans and SUVs and trucks have to cost $80,000 or less. 
uh, to qualify, you have to earn under $150,000 per year or $300,000 per year if married and filed jointly. And then half of the tax credit applies if most of the battery's critical minerals come from the United States or our free trade partners. The other half qualifies if most of the battery components are made assembled in the United States. Uh, yeah. And then there's, there is this uh, loophole that leased EVs uh, don't have to meet those criteria. All leased EVs qualify for a $7,500 tax credit because they're considered kind of commercial vehicles that the dealership owns and then leases out. Um, and so in some cases, you can get a better deal by leasing an EV than buying an EV if you're looking at an EV that doesn't qualify for some of these tax credits uh, if you buy it. So something to bear in mind is to compare your options between leasing and buying and see where you can get a better deal. One really nice thing is that in January of next year, the tax credits are become, uh, become transferable to auto dealers. So basically, the auto dealer takes the tax credit and then takes that money off of the sticker price of the car. And so you don't have to worry about your tax liability. Uh, you just get it basically becomes an upfront discount which makes it much, much easier. Uh, that's gonna be really nice and gonna make it easier for people to buy EVs and just see the cost and the sticker price without without having like, to you know, calculate like, what's it gonna do to my uh, tax liability next year? Uh, so I put together this table of the different uh, models of EVs that qualify for the tax credit currently. Uh, what their cost is, what their range is, uh, and what the cost would be without the with the tax credit removed. Um, so we should be getting a link going into the chat of where you can find this table, which I just updated a couple weeks ago. Um, I think it's worth uh, noting. I got a question yesterday uh, in after my talk in the Q and A session. Uh, people were asking, uh, aren't dealerships or car companies having a problem like they're kind of scaling back in their EV? Uh, manufacturing right now and their EV uh, projections uh, in the United States. There's been a bunch of stories about that. And that is uh, in large part due to the fact that right now electric cars are sitting on dealership lots for longer uh, on average than gasoline power cars. They're not selling as quickly. And so, um, you know, that's kind of forcing uh, at least American dealerships kind of scale back. Um, so that is generally true. I think that is going to uh, not last very long because we also saw the data yesterday that uh, electric car sales are accelerating very, very fast in the United States uh, and starting to catch up to the rest of the world on that. Uh, I think it's also worth noting that there are exceptions. Uh, the Chevrolet Bolt, uh, which I'm a little biased there. That's uh, the car that I own, and it's a really great car. That is actually staying on dealership lots for a short amount of time than the average gasoline power car. So those are selling very quickly. Uh, you can also see at the top here that the Bolt is uh, with the tax credit under $20,000 right now, which uh, I'll say is about half of what I paid for it six years ago. And so the price has come down a lot. It's very, very affordable. Um, so I think it's it's pretty great that there is an EV available for you know basically under twenty thousand uh, dollars once the tax credits are applied and i think it should be like the best selling car in the country personally because i love it and i wish i could have paid twenty thousand dollars for it so in any case let's move to used evs because there's also a tax credit for used evs which is very cool so that one's going to be either four thousand dollars or thirty percent of the sales price whatever is less um and it has to meet a variety of criteria to qualify, you have to earn under $75,000 or $150,000 if married and filing jointly. Uh, the EV has to be at least two years old. 
it can't cost more than $25,000 uh, when you purchase it used. Uh, the weight has to be less than 14,000 pounds, which just basically means that it's not uh, a heavy-duty vehicle. Uh, even the electric Hummer weighs less than that, so it's, that's not a, an important criterion. Uh, the battery capacity has to be at least 7 kilowatt hours, which basically means that I think just about every plug-in hybrid qualifies for this used uh, EV tax credit. So it's not just fully electric car, it's also plug-in hybrids that qualify. Uh, one catch is that you have to buy it from a dealership, and it has to be the first transfer, so you have to be the second owner. It's so basically the first owner, put it, gave it to, uh, sold it to the dealership, and then the dealership sells it to you. So it's a little bit of a complication. Uh, the nice thing is there is none of that uh, made in North America or free trade agreements or anything like that. Sourcing requirements, you don't have to worry about you know where the batteries came from, where the vehicle is assembled. Just every used EV qualifies for this tax credit as long as you meet those other criteria. And again, the other nice thing is that in January, those tax credits become transferable to the auto dealers. And so the auto dealer can just buy somebody's EV take the tax credit, take the money off uh, the $4,000 or whatever it is off of the sticker price, and then you just go in and buy the EV for whatever they're selling it for. Um, so that just makes it a lot easier than having to worry about uh, taking advantage of the tax credit yourself. Then there's also an EV charger tax uh, credit uh, up to $1,000 if you're living in what's uh, uh, determined to be a non-urban or a low-income community which that's uh, kind of complicated to figure out who's in a low-income community. Uh, so again, I would just advise people to go to the uh, Rewiring America IRA calculator and plug in your information, which includes your zip code, and then it tells you if you qualify for this particular tax credit. And it's way easier, trust me, than trying to figure out uh, if you're in a metropolitan area or if you're in uh, a low-income community. And then there's rooftop solar panels and batteries, which of course are great because you're able to produce your own zero emissions electricity. Um, again, there are people that raise the question, you know, hey, if you're gonna build solar panels, you do have to do that mining for you know silicon and all the different critical minerals. But again, that only happens once. Uh, just you get the materials, you mine those once, you put them into the solar panels, and then it's done, as opposed to constantly drilling or drilling and extracting and burning uh, natural gas or you know, mining and extracting and burning coal, which is you're doing more and more environmental impacts constantly. So while there is an environmental impact from solar panels, it is much, much smaller than from uh, using the electric grid, which still burns fossil fuels. Uh, you're also guarding against fluctuating electricity rates because even though electricity rates are relatively stable, they do still go up and down. And so if you're generating your own electricity on your own solar panels, you don't have to worry about that. And if you have battery storage combined with your solar panels, then that can protect against power outages. So when the power goes out, you can start to get electricity from your batteries and you're still in good shape. So that's a very nice benefit. So this one has a slightly different tax credit. It is still a 30% tax credit, uh, but it's uncapped, which is kind of nice. So whatever your solar panel system costs, you get a 30% tax credit with no limits. So for example, if you have a $15,000 solar system that you buy, you get $4,500 worth of tax credits. Um, and there's also a tax credit for electrical panel upgrades if that needs to be done uh, at your home and when you're doing your solar uh, rooftop installation. So that can be a very nice thing to take advantage of because oftentimes we're electrifying a lot of stuff in our homes. 
and our electrical panels need upgrades. And so if you can get a tax credit for that, that's really nice. And that one is also uncapped. And then there's also the 30% uncapped tax credit for battery storage. So if you're also installing a battery storage system along with your solar panel system, then you get 30% tax credit for that up to however much it costs. So if you install a $16,000 uh, battery storage system, you get a $4,800 tax credit, for example. And again, you know, if that, you know, if that tax credits uh, total amount that you get is more than your tax liability in a given year, this one you can carry over into future years and take off the tax liability that you have in future years as well. And so all these stuff we're talking about doing, you know, heat pump space heaters and water heaters and electric stoves and uh, solar panels and batteries and EV chargers, those can increase uh, the demand uh, for electricity uh, at your home and the uh, necessary infrastructure. And so you may need an electrical panel upgrade and or wiring upgrades, which an electrician can tell you. Uh, so definitely check with an electrician if you're going to see if you're going to need those upgrades. If you do, uh, again, there will be upfront discounts uh, for low and middle income households from the HERA program once it becomes available starting next year. So the discount will be up to $4,000 for electrical panel upgrades and up to $2,500 for electrical wiring upgrades. Again, 100% coverage for low income households up to those amounts and 50% for middle income households up to those amounts. And there is currently a tax credit available uh, up to $600 per year for those upgrades and resetting every year if you need to do uh, different uh, electrical panel and wiring upgrades, you can potentially spread that out. So that's all I've got. I'll hand it over to Kristen here in a second, but if you have any questions that we don't get to or you just want to hang out with chat with the, us on the Nerd Corner uh, with our fellow CCL nerds, you can go to cclusa.org slash nerd-corner. Uh, we also have just our general forums at cclusa.org slash forums. Um, so I will pass it over to Kristen. Then once Kristen is done, then we'll have lots of times for questions. Uh, so as questions pop into your head, use that Q&A button at the bottom of the Zoom window, and we'll get to those as soon as Kristen is done. So Kristen, it's all yours. And if I got anything wrong, by the way, uh, please feel free to correct me. No, this is great. Thank you for that great overview, Dana. Um, hi, everyone. I'm so happy to be here today. I am a carbon pricing advocate going way back. I worked on California's cap and trade program, implementing it um, while I was at NRDC. I've, uh, while I was at Sightline Institute in the Pacific Northwest, I worked on a lot of initiatives and efforts to pass carbon pricing in Washington state and in Oregon. And then most recently I was at the Niskanen Center working on carbon pricing nationally. So in those efforts, I have come across a lot of CCL uh, staff and volunteers and have always found them to be great partners and have been really impressed with volunteers um, dedication and knowledge and just skill at working with elected officials. So I'm very happy to be here today talking to you about electrification. Uh, let me get my slides. Oop, I want them there. All right. Are y'all seeing my slides? Yeah, looks good. Okay, great. Um, so the, as probably a lot of you are aware, the big source of um, emissions is coming from energy sectors. And so uh, 
you know, in a very simple way, if we can generate all of our electricity from clean sources and then can run everything on electricity, then that can lead us to uh, better climate stability. So Rewiring America really kind of started out with this idea that we kind of know how to do the clean electricity generation part. I mean, we're not completely there yet, but we have the solar, we have the wind, it's it's cheaper than the alternatives at this point. Um, so we were really focused on that second half of the equation, which is how do we electrify all of the things? Um, and we started out with the 42% of uh, emissions that come from decisions made around our kitchen tables. So that's the decisions about how we heat our homes, our, how we heat our water, our food, how we dry our clothes, you know, how we get around. Um, and there, luckily, there are these great new modern options. So heat pumps, heat pump water heaters, heat pump dryers, induction stoves, um, electric vehicles, rooftop solar, all of the things that you heard Dana talk about. These are new modern options available to us now. Um, and I'm just going to show you this Nissan Leaf commercial, and I have the volume turned off so I can talk over it. But basically, I love this commercial because it shows, like, imagining what it would look like if we burned fossil fuels inside our house for all of the things that we right now use electricity for. Um, and how crazy that would be to have, you know, like, things burning and smoke coming out of them all the time. And yet, we actually do combust fossil fuels in our homes, in our furnaces, our water heaters, our stoves, our dryers, they are burning things. And um, it's not just the smoke part of that is that is crazy, but it's also, oh, sorry, I don't want to start that again. I want the next slide. Um, it is also, oops, I think I'm stuck in a loop. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Um, it is also the efficiency. So uh, as, as Dana said, when you're using fire to heat things up, it actually wastes a lot of heat. And so those heat pumps are three times, that's 300% more efficient than burning a fossil fuel in your home to get the same heat because the heat pump is actually pushing it around. So when we're talking about electrifying everything, it's not just like, oh, electricity is cleaner. It's also so much more efficient. So we like to say at Rewiring America that um, it's not just, it's, it's that the efficiency really, or the electrification is the efficiency. So if you get a gas car that is more efficient, it is still burning gas. Um, so it's a little less waste, but with these new modern electric machines, you're actually wasting so much less energy because all of it is going into moving the heat around rather than into burning something and creating the heat. So great, we've got our equation, right? We generate everything with clean electricity and then we electrify all the things. Um, that means a billion new electric machines installed in the United States by 2050 in order for us to be on path for 1.5 degrees C. Um, so, and that also means that because, you know, for example, a heat pump might last 15 years, then if we want 100% to be uh, electric by 2050, we can't be installing any new gas furnaces after 2035. So that is just 12 years away. And we, Rewiring America, we, we calculated this out, like on the path that we're on, how, because there are new electric machines being installed, installed now. We have some already in place. We have some being installed. Um, so we, we figure there's like 12, 13 million that are going to be installed in the next few years, no matter what. 
but we need to have 26 or 27 uh, million. And so that leaves a gap where it's up to us to be pushing new electric machines to fill that gap to keep us on path for 2050. So um, we have our report out uh, nationally on our pace of progress, but um, I'm giving you a little sneak peek. Shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> this is actually gonna be rolled out next week officially, um, but this is what it's gonna look like. We took that pace of progress down to the state and county level. So you can plug in your state or your county and sort of see that curve where that the gray line is how many we think are gonna be installed just business as usual. And the yellow line is what we need in order to get on path to 2050. And then that purple area is the difference, which is what all of us are needing to, to push. Um, so this, um, once it rolled out next week, will be, I think, a great tool that you can use with your local leaders. You know, you can go and say, like, down to the county level, here's the gap that we're trying to fill. How are we going to get there? Um, and just a quick note, Dana mentioned Maine, and yes, yay, Maine is doing great. They actually blew past their 2025 goal. So they had a goal of 100,000 heat pumps installed by 2025, and this is in a state with 570,000 households. So 100,000 is actually uh, was a pretty aggressive goal, and they hit that goal in 2023. So they're now actually in the midst of setting a more ambitious goal. So this is definitely uh, doable. And of course, this is where the IRA comes in with all of the things that Dana talked about helping us um, jumpstart this uh, move towards a billion electric machines. And this is just a big bucket. I actually started to make buckets <laughs> like, like uh, Dana had for the, you know, the rebates and the tax credits, but then there were too many buckets. So here's all the kind of big buckets in the IRA that, you know, the, the big one is the tax credits because as Dana said, those are uncapped. And so that could be, uh, you know, if, if lots of people take advantage, it could be a lot, you know, we're estimating around 43 uh, billion, but it could be even more if more people take advantage of it. Then there's this big bucket of the greenhouse gas reduction fund, which has some pieces under it. The home energy rebates, you know, which are those point of sale rebates that Dana was talking about, those are nine billion and that is capped, you know, unlike the tax credits, which is just like as many as people want to do, the home energy rebates, they will run out after nine um, billion. Um, and then there's cl uh, climate pollution reduction grants and community block grants. So lots of different um, ways that the IRA was trying to tackle this problem. Um, so. Uh, you heard a lot about what, you know, as a single, as a homeowner or apartment owner, what you can do. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what landlords and renters can do um, to take advantage of the IRA. Um, so good news, landlords, all of those things that Dana talked about, you know, the heat pump credits, the water heater, stoves, those um, are all available to landlords. And in fact, 10% of those home energy rebates are set aside for low-income multifamily buildings. So if if a landlord of a building where at least half of the tenants are low or moderate income has access to, and in fact is, you know, some of the those credits are set aside for them. Um, and then in addition to that, uh, landlords have uh, access to tax deductions for commercial buildings. As long as they have four or more units, they count as a, 
a commercial building for the purposes of this IRA tax deduction. Um, they can get home energy efficiency um, credits, which now because of the IRA can actually be stacked on top of the existing low income housing tax credits. So we're hoping this will result in more affordable housing that is um, also energy efficient and electric. Uh, there's green and resilient retrofit programs, which is going through HUD, and it will be grants and loans for affordable uh, multifamily housing landlords. And then there's also a bonus. So if you're in a low, if you're located in a low-income community and you put qualifying solar or wind up, you're eligible for, um, you know, existing tax credits plus a, a, a bonus amount be, for being in a low-income area. So as a renter, what this means is, you know, first of all, you should make sure that your landlord knows that all of these things are available. They, they can get rebates, they can get tax credits, they can get tax deductions. So, you know, just um, make sure that they know that those are all available and that they could help upgrade their building stock and lower the, the bills for their tenants. And then you as a renter, there are also some of these appliances are things that you might take with you. So, you know, you're not gonna take your furnace with you, but in some rentals, it didn't, it doesn't come with a stove or it doesn't come with a, a clothes washer and dryer. And so you can buy one and get this tax credit or um, tax credit or rebate and then take it with you, you know, to your next rental property. Um, and then in addition to things that are available with the credits, there's also like, if you have a gas stove in your apartment um, and you don't, you, you know, you have kids and you don't necessarily want to be burning that methane gas inside your enclosed house, you can actually get a very inexpensive hot plate, you put it on the counter and then you can cook on top of that instead of on top of your gas stove. Um, and then also, of course, you are eligible for the EV rebates that um, that Dana talked about, you know, that's not tied to whether you're a homeowner or not, so you should definitely take advantage of those. Um, so there is there are also provisions in the IRA that will, can help um, local governments, schools, communities, uh, nonprofit organizations. And here, the big innovation that the IRA did was direct pay. So previously, organizations that were tax exempt, so local governments, um, tribes, schools, municipally owned utilities, nonprofits, churches, all of those are tax exempt entities. So they didn't have a tax burden. And so they couldn't qualify for tax credits. Uh, but what the IRA did is say, we will just give you the money, even if you don't have a tax burden, we'll just directly pay you the money. So it opens up this whole new uh, opportunity for those tax exempt entities to be investing in um, solar, wind, and other things that uh, you can get tax credits for. Um, so the other thing, uh, big thing that, that cities might consider is often cities have some control over building code. I mean, sometimes it's completely at the state level, but often cities will have maybe their, their own um, piece of it or their own um, version of the state code. And there is this technical assistance fund to help cities and states upgrade their building code to be more energy efficient. And that has a huge impact because then, you know, every building that's built has to comply with that new, more efficient code. So if your city or state has a really outdated code, there's funding here to help them update it, which can then have a big impact. Um, so these tax exempt entities, you know, cities, schools, et cetera, can also now get the, in, the clean energy investment tax credit. So if they're installing solar panels, battery storage, ground source heat pumps, et cetera, and these, this can apply both 
for utility scale, you know, like big projects. So for example, a municipally owned community solar development, that's big, they can get the tax credit for that. Or also for like rooftop solar, you know, so if your school wants to put on rooftop solar, it can be eligible for this um, investment tax credit. And again, there are bonus credits for projects that serve low income underserved communities um, and disadvantaged communities. So if you um, have a school in one of those neighborhoods or maybe a city building in one of those neighborhoods and you put solar on top, you get the, the tax credit plus a bonus payment um, that can increase the value potentially up to 70% of the total installation costs. Um, so you can install solar for less than a third of the going cost. Um, in addition to the investment tax credit, there is the production tax credit. So this is for the amount of money or the, the cost of the energy being generated. Uh, so if you have a renewable energy project, either again, either utility scale or rooftop um, scale, it can uh, reduce the, the amount of money that you have to pay for the energy coming off of that project. And then that commercial building deduction that I talked about that your, your landlord is eligible for is um, also, you know, any building owner. So it, a school can qualify for it, you know, a local business can qualify for it. So any building owner that is doing an upgrade to your lighting, uh, HVAC, hot water, your weatherization can get a um, tax deduction for those investments. And then finally, there's these environmental justice block grants. So it's $3 billion that is going to go to community-based nonprofits and their partners. And um, the, the first round is done, but they're, they're, not all the money is gone. There's, there's still opportunity if you are working with a community-based nonprofit that they can apply for this money. And it can be used for, um, for uh, air quality monitoring, for building upgrades, for workforce development, for uh, air and toxic uh, pollution reductions. So there's a lot that can go in here for uh, any kind of nonprofit that works in an environmental justice area. So there's a lot of stuff in the IRA um, and you can definitely be talking to your um, local leaders about how they can take advantage of all of this money that's coming through. And in addition, you can talk to them about joining Rewiring America's local government leaders for electrification. We have almost 200 local um, mayors, city council members, other leaders who um, get together and talk about what they're doing, what you can do, and just sort of how to push the envelope on electrification. You can also talk to your local leaders. There are local policies that really can make a difference for electrification. And we have, this is a screenshot of a, a report that we have that's kind of just like all the options for local governments. And um, I'm I'll send out a, a PDF of it afterward and feel free to, to talk, to contact me to talk more if you do want to approach your local government. But, you know, so there's a lot of options there. I'll just highlight a couple. So one is, um, in the United States, often the permitting for rooftop solar is prohibitively expensive. I mean, it raises the cost of our rooftop solar a lot compared to, for example, Australia. But there is an option for streamlining that that some cities have already taken advantage of. And if your city hasn't, you know, you should tell them that they can take advantage and it can bring down costs just by making the permitting easier. Um, local governments can invest in workforce development because 
as you know, you and your friends and neighbors are going out and starting to ask contractors about, you know, I want to stall a heat pump. How do I do this? Some contractors, they're not there yet. They, they, you know, they haven't installed that many heat pumps. They might even try and talk you out of it. And so making sure that you have a local supply of contractors who know how to do it, who are comfortable with it, who are going to work with you on your electrification journey is a thing that your local government can play a role in. And then just to highlight one other example, local governments have uh, the potential to negotiate bulk purchasing. So uh, this is just an example in the state of Oregon where these uh, local government entities got together and said, you know, we think that we can drive a certain amount of heat pump sales within our region. So we're going to negotiate um, with the uh, suppliers and say, you know, can we get a bulk discount? And then we're going to pass that discount price along to anybody in the region. So if you're, you know, going to buy a heat pump in this area, you know, you might be able to get a hundred or $200 off just from them saying, we're going to get a certain amount of volume coming through here. Um, and so finally, you know, you can spread the word and, uh, you know, right now, not, not enough people know a that electrification is a solution to climate change that it is you know cheaper it's uh, incredibly efficient and that the ira has all this money available so do you know tell people tell people how great it is tell people that the ira exists and that it's there to help and then if you love that, if you love talking to people about electrification, um, you can sign up for Rewiring America's Electric Coaches program. So this is a four-week course for individuals who kind of already know something about electrification. Either they you know, electrified their house personally or they're a real estate agent who has seen people do it. And they really want to help their peers in their community figure this stuff out. So it's four weeks. Uh, it's a cohort. You go through it with a cohort and you have online sessions and then, you know, a library of content and a, and a toolkit at, at the end. Um, and the idea is that we're trying to train up enough people so that in every community, if somebody is like, hmm, I, you know, I don't know about this, how does this all work, that you have a peer in that community who you can call who can help answer all of your questions. Um, so I'll send out the link. Um, we have a, a waiting list uh, at the moment, but I'll send out the link if you're interested in becoming an electric coach. And then finally, um, Dana talked about our calculator. Um, and of course, like use it, tell your friends, tell your contractors, and also let them know it is embeddable. So right now we have like some contractors who have embedded the calculator into their site. So it looks just like their site. It doesn't, you know, redirect people over to Rewiring America. So if they've got customers coming to their site, they are basically offering them this tool you know, courtesy of us, but it's, you know, branded as the contractor. So if your city or your local contractors or your church wants to embed this and just make it a tool for their um, people, it doesn't, you know, you don't have to redirect them to our site. You can use it yourself. Um, and then the other thing to know about our calculator is right now, like the generic calculator is just the, the federal uh, tax credits and rebates, but we are working with a couple of states to bring in all of the uh, you know, state, local utility incentives. So we have right now Rhode Island, we're going to be rolling out soon, um, where if you live in Rhode Island, you can put in your zip code and it'll show you everything, federal, state, utility that is available to you. Um, so you, if you happen to be talking to state officials, you can let them know that this is a thing that Rewiring America is um, willing and able to work with them to make it state specific. 
And then uh, we have lots of other resources too, to just to help say like, what is electrification? Why is it important? What's a heat pump? We've got all of that on our website that you can look at or direct people to. And then coming up, we have what we call our personal electrification planner that will kind of take that next step with you. So, you know, as Dana said, there's an annual cap to these benefits. So you might want to like spread the work over two years, or sometimes there's work that needs to be done before something else can be done. You know, like you need to think about the wiring before you can install this other thing. So the personal electrification planner is meant to like really take you through that journey. I want to do this. What should I think about? It'll sort of help you plan out the project, help connect you with a contractor who knows how to do electrification. Um, and so this is another great tool, not just for you, but also you know, for your contractor. If your contractor is like not sure about electrification, this can also help um, educate them about the journey. Um, and so basically it'll give you very specific information about your particular house and, and what needs to be done and what your savings could do. So electrifying a billion machines is an audacious goal, but it is one that will not only help us stabilize the climate, but will be good for our health, for local jobs, for our pocketbooks. So I thank all of you so much for being on Team Electrification with us. Awesome. Thanks, Christian. That was super informative. I like that embeddable calculator and the, the planner. You guys come up with some really cool, cool tools over at Rewiring America. So we got, looks like 68 questions in the Q&A and Rick is gonna moderate for those, moderate those for us and maybe go through some of the most upvoted ones. Um, but Rick, what do you- what Okay. Do you so yeah, wow, what a <laughs> wonderful blitz of information. Um, I'm gonna have to watch the recording of this again and <laughs> try to absorb it all because I was looking at questions. Uh, some of this has already been answered but Paul Kane had asked, this was the most upvoted answer. Uh, do you have any advice for low income nonprofits, for example, inner city churches who want to do energy upgrades but cannot afford the cost even with the incentives provided by the IRA? So um, my first thought was, you know, there they are these, um, these um, uh, special, uh, <clears throat> special pot of money for EJ communities, which could be available, but uh, I don't know if you have anything else to add to that. Yeah, I mean, just to emphasize what I, you know, that it's the IRA is not just sort of the tax credits and rebates, but like I said, there's these other programs like the block grants um, that might be able to fill that gap for you. Um, I mean, there's also, I mean, that's only the federal things. You it can also look into state and local incentive programs. Increasingly, you know, more states are kind of seeing that this is a need and are putting in money. So, you know, no, no guarantee, but if you can stack up, you know, the, the rebates, the block grants, and maybe you have some state or local, it might be able to get you all the way. Another highly upvoted question. Uh, I noticed that rewiring America's calculator no longer lists induction stoves as a part of electrification rebates. Is that a change? I am not. So I know we have been trying to get more exact about what's available now and what's not. So the tax credits are available now, but they're not for the induction stoves, whereas the rebates will be available for the stoves, but no state has yet rolled them out. So, um, but I thought we were just indicating that with like a flag. It could be that there's like a temporary 
thing where we took it down so as not to mm-hmm. confuse people about what's available now and what's not. Yeah, so it should list uh, the rebates, but there aren't any tax credits for stoves. So maybe that was the discrepancy there. Yeah, and it's important to distinguish between the rebates and the tax credits, and it does get confusing for people who are not tax attorneys. Uh, Vernon Dixon asks, if you sell your EV before three years, do you have to pay back part of the rebate? I would guess no, but I thought I'd throw that to you. No, I think the only like the yearly uh, criterion there is that if you're buying an EV, a used EV, it has to be at least two years old. Uh, but when you're selling the EV, then there's no particular um, you know financial issue associated with that. It's just like you're selling any other car. Um, but yeah, it's just qualifying for the used the used car rebate. The car that you're buying has to be at least two years old, and it has to be the first transfer and all those other fancy requirements there. Yeah, I think uh, that there was there's another question uh, from Jeff Holzem about uh, greening up. Uh, he said, Dana, I'm working on greening up my parish. Can you tell us which benefits apply to nonprofits? I think I, I think uh, Kristen has answered that. Um, now, Paul Friedrich asked a question that I, I thought was a good one. Do cold climate heat pumps need any kind of backup for the coldest weather, such as resistive electric heating? So you can size, there are cold weather specific heat pumps that can handle pretty much anything. You can also like use a regular heat pump and size it bigger to meet a certain need. Um, Or you can use a ground source heat pump, which works fine no matter how cold it is because it's, uh, you know, it's buried down in the ground. Um, And then in addition there, you can get... um, electric resistance heat that's like built into the heat pump to give it that extra boost. The the resistance heat is much less efficient, um, but just if you're just thinking about like a couple days a year where you need a little extra boost, it's it's like built into the system um, to build it up for those right. days. I, th- I think Susan Adams uh, put a note in here to ask me, ask her, uh, perhaps you have some direct experience, Susan, if you want to weigh in on this? Uh, direct experiences with the cold weather heat pumps? I, I do not, but definitely from, t- we've we've talked a lot with um, Efficiency Main Trust that has installed all of those heat pumps. And um, they said that they experienced, some people wanted to keep like their propane boiler as a backup. Um, and for the most part, they do not recommend that because they can give you a heat pump that will work. And they've found that if people keep that propane, they'll they'll gen- then just use the, pro- they'll like forget that they have the heat pump and just burn the propane. So um, in, in general, you can get a heat pump that can handle it and doesn't need that, you know, extra fossil fuel backup. Yeah. Okay, uh, another highly upvoted question. Can you talk about incentives to towns, cities or counties? Uh, to adopt and implement climate action plans. I think uh, you've talked about that, Kristen. Anything to add? Yeah, so so just that I, I think I touched on this briefly, the climate pollution reduction grants are um, states as well as large uh, metropolitan statistical areas. So not counties, but you know, it's like down below the state level. Um, and basically it's a, um, 
you're coming up with a plan for how you're going to reduce climate pollution, and then um, you can get money to to both to write the plan and then also to implement the plan. And it is a competitive process. So unlike like the rebates, every state's going to get sort of like their fair share based on their population. But the climate pollution reduction grants are more money will go to places with a better plan. So certainly um, you could be talking to your your large city or or state about um, whether they're applying for those. Okay. Yeah, I think the deadline for that passed for, so there was like some funding to create those climate action plans. And so like, I think every state except for like four um, applied for that in uh, pretty much all large metropolitan areas. And so now they'll be getting the funds, which is like, I think it's $3 million for a state and $1 million for a large metropolitan area to create the plans. And then they'll submit the plans and then they get uh, grants uh, you know, sent to them based on like who has the best ideas for uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions in their state or metropolitan mm. area. Yeah, that's a great clarification uh, and, and a great um, incentive for CCL people to go to their local community uh, leaders and, and and explain that to them. Uh, Paul Bernstein asks, is there concern about heat pumps because of the refrigerants using high global warming uh, potential gases and leakage of these refrigerants? Uh, so yes, they do use uh, uh, refrigerants that are right now a higher global warming pollution potential. There is a movement towards, um, so basically there's a little bit of a trade-off between fire safety laws that push towards the higher global warming pollution potential and then you know climate orientation that which would push towards lower and basically the fire safety laws are a bit outdated there's you know if you have natural gas in your home you have a a, a fire uh, risk um and so there is i think most states have now passed the epa has a like standard saying uh, which lower global warming pollution um, refrigerants are still safe. And then most states are now moving to like recognize and implement that standard. And so as that moves, we'll start to see more options on the market. Um, but for the moment, most options on the market are still a higher global warming potential. But an important thing there is as long as you have a skilled contractor who knows what they're doing and they install it right, it should not leak. Um, and you will know if it's leaking because you'll run out of refrigerant. Um, so if you get your thing installed and then the refrigerant level is the same, then it's not leaking until you're not, you know, causing any additional warming. Yeah, and I, and I would add too that uh, I'm I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I would bet that the amount of uh, greenhouse gas reduction you achieve with a heat pump, even if there's a little bit of leakage of some of that um, freon type refrigerant would be far greater than any amount from the leakage. And there is a federal program right now to uh, reduce uh, leakage of, uh, of global warming of, of fluorinated gases, which will apply. Okay, what is the best way, this is from Leslie McGeorge, what's the best way to find a qualified contractor to conduct a home energy audit who will assure it qualifies for the tax credit and how does one decide whether to do an independent audit or work through your local utilities audit program? <sighs> so for the rebates, the, 
that an audit is required for the homes rebates. And so once your state rolls that out, they will most likely have a list of qualified contractors who know how to do that. Um, there is, yeah, this is one of the like challenges that we're trying to work on is there's different programs with slightly different requirements and maybe slightly different, you know, requirements for the auditor, right? So your utility program might already have an auditor, but the IRA rebates are going to come and they might have, you know, the same or a, a, a different pool of auditors. Um, so my recommendation would be to go with the auditor who is qualified under the program that you're trying to access, right? So if you are trying to get a utility rebate, make sure you're going with one of your utilities approved auditors. If you're trying to get the homes rebate, um, your state will be able to tell you which auditors are um, eligible for that. Okay, great. Um, there, there have been questions of people asking for the slide deck, but I think that's going to be available in the chat. Um, Bob James asks, well, okay, what about low-income renters and homeowners? You have answered that, I think, adequately. But here's an interesting question from Betty Carteret. Are Nordic countries using ground source or air-to-air -air heat pumps? I don't, I don't have any numbers on that. My, uh, I believe they're using both. I mean, I know that like Maine has pointed to Nordic countries using air source heat pumps, you know, when they sort of started up their program. Um, but I think there are also some ground source, uh, like, you know, pilots. So I, I don't have the numbers on it, but yeah. a little bit of both. Uh, an interesting question uh, here from uh, Molly Whiteley. Uh, if you own a rental property, but you also live there, can you get a credit both as a homeowner and as a rental owner? <laughs> tricky one. Wow, tricky tax question. Um, I, I don't know. Um, I would guess that you can't stack two sets of home energy rebates, but you might be able to stack the home energy rebates with the like the 179D, the the tax uh, deduction, um, but probably like you probably have to distinguish like which which project is benefiting, you know, like which living space. Uh, but yeah, that's very tricky. <laughs> yeah, another good one to maybe post in the nerd corner, and we can uh, follow up on it. Uh, Rob Bastian wants to know, what is the income amount used for uh, comparing area median income? Is it net income, taxable income, or gross income? Uh, maybe Rob is a tax preparer and wants to know that. Do we know? I actually don't know. <laughs> That's actually good. I don't know. Most, most likely, I think it's probably gross income, but don't quote me on that. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> if your electric utility company provides credits and or discounts for heat pumps and so on, does that reduce your IRA benefit? I, I assume the answer was no, but I thought you'd confirm. No, that. they, the, they should, um, they will stack. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one, another question from Betty Carter, can unapplied tax credits be carried forward to next year? I, I know, Dana, you mentioned that in one case, but I'm not sure if it's generally true. Yeah. It's only the solar and battery tax credits. Uh, the other ones, like 
so again, you can like do different projects in different years for the resetting tax credits. Um, but the only one that carries over if you have extra okay. uh, tax rebates to carry over is the solar and battery tax mm -hmm. credit. Okay. Now here, Rick Swanson from my chapter wants to know, he says, my electrician told me that to completely electrify my home and auto, an upgrade from 100 amp to 200 amp service would be necessary. This would cost $5,000 or more. And would the IRA help pay part of this cost? I think the answer is yes, but... Don't yeah, know. I talked about some of the the, the, the incentives for uh, electrical panel upgrades and wiring upgrades. There's a tax credit and there's a rebate uh, under the, the HERA if you're lower middle income. Or there will be uh, a rebate once those become available from your state. Yeah, I think a lot of these questions could be answered just by going back and re-watching the, the session. Uh, another... Another and I'll just add that there's also the solar for all program also includes money for wiring. So if you were going to be installing solar panels, in addition to your EV and everything else, like there's, you know, you could also get some money for wiring through that program. Mm -hmm. Okay. Another question about um, rental owners uh, for renters that want to encourage owners to install heat pumps, do the renter's income count or the owner's income for the low to middle income limits? The the renters, the occupants. Okay. Here's one that I found really interesting uh, and it's getting upvoted. For states like Florida where the governor has blocked IRA funding, can you explain the difference between the state level funds that have been blocked and the city or county or individual funds that will flow regardless of what the governor has blocked. I mean, one thing we talked about um, the, the the greenhouse gas reductions program, I think it's called, where it's uh, each state metro metropolitan area had the opportunity to create a, a climate a climate plan, and then so they got funds for that, and then they're creating the plans, and then they're going to get grants for the best ideas. And I mentioned four states uh, declined to participate, and Florida was one of them, and so Florida can't do that program, but there are metropolitan areas in Florida uh, that did apply, and so they will be uh, participating in that program. So that's one example where the mm -hmm. state's not doing a climate plan, but uh, the metropolitan areas in Florida, a couple of them, I think, are. Hmm. Okay. And that program was cleverly designed with Florida in mind um, <laughs> to give more money to the MSAs because the state turned it down. So it's basically like there's still going to be money flowing into Florida, it's just going to go through the, you know, the metropolitan area instead of the state, like, fine, governor, you don't want it. Um, and then in terms of the, the home energy rebates, it's not over yet. The governor has like said he doesn't want it, but you actually have states have until 2025 to apply for that. So it's, uh, the state still could turn it around um, and still get that money. But if they do not if they persist in not taking the money, then yes, those rebates um, will not be available to Floridians. The tax credit still will be, but the rebates won't. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Anne-Marie Eklund wants to know, when will we know when the discounts will be available and what's causing the uncertainty around the timing of those discounts? I'm not sure well, the, the question. The tax, the tax credits are already available, yeah. but the rebates, um, the rebates have to be rolled out by the states. 
And so the states have to meet all these requirements, right? So they, they have to hire an implementer and they have to send in an application. And so each state, depending on kind of like their existing capacity is working mm -hmm. through those requirements. So some of the uncertainty is just, it is a state by state. So nobody can say for sure when your state um, will mm -hmm. be ready. But what we are hearing from states is probably most of them will be rolling out the rebates um, by second half or in second half of 2024. Um, mm -hmm. So it's just that it's taking them that time to sort of hire some staff and then the staff have to write the application and then they have to, you know, start actually figuring yeah. out how to implement it. So that's the, that is the delay and uncertainty. So maybe we need some lobbyists at the state level to work in this. Okay. Um, renters, we've already uh, pretty much covered that. Um, batteries for EVs don't last forever. How long do they last? And that's not really a question for this panel, I don't think. I mean, they, they do, like, they have been shown to last for a very long time um, in the cars that have been on the road so far. Um, yeah. We certainly have examples, at least from, like, hybrids. Like, Priuses have been on the road for forever and ever, and the batteries just, they take a long time to need to be replaced. So, generally speaking, yeah. not really not really much of a concern in the lifetime of the, the car that you're going to be driving it. And then once they do eventually wear out, they can be reused for, for example, uh, for battery storage on the grid um, or... Also, there's recycling opportunities. Yeah, I, I think th there is a degradation of capacity over time. I've had my uh, EV, my PH EV for uh, since 2015 now, so eight years, and I've lost about 10% of capacity, but that's not the same thing as wearing out. Uh, here's an interesting one. What about transitioning from gas to electric leaf blowers? I mean, it's, it's definitely a good idea for a lot of different reasons. I mean, they're quieter, so there's less noise pollution. They are less air polluting, so it's better for your health. Um, so just in general, it's a good idea. There aren't any particular incentives. I think there might have been some proposed in like when it was Build Back Better. I think they were proposing to have some incentives, but then it got pulled out when it got shrunk down a little bit for the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah. Also, some other things like electric bike incentives didn't make it in there. Um, so no incentives for it, but it's still a good idea for a lot of different reasons. Um, and like a good one just being your health because like you're burning fossil fuels right in front of your face with that leaf blower. So switch yeah. to and you'll be much healthier. Okay. Um, question, will the climate solution reduction grants go primarily to urban areas? I live in a town of about 13,000 people. Would we have a chance? So, I mean, the, yeah, the grants for the climate action plans have already been, are like to create the climate action plans have already been uh, awarded to, and it was going to, I think it was the 67 largest metropolitan areas. Um, so you had to be a relatively big metropolitan area to qualify. Mm -hmm. uh, and those have already been like decided. So uh, unfortunately, small areas aren't going to be able to get those. Now does that- But if your state applied or if your state, you know, gets the many, they might still have programs that work mm -hmm. for you. It's just that your, you know, locality wasn't uh, eligible to apply by itself. And when you talk about a metropolitan area, are you talking about just the core city or the uh, surrounding suburbs? Yeah, it's like city and surrounding suburbs. Like Sacramento, we've got lots of suburbs. It's like it's the Sacramento and surrounding areas. And so mm -hmm. like I'm not in Sacramento, but I'm like part of the Sacramento metropolitan area. 
-hmm. It's like a census designation, the metropolitan statistical area. It's kind of like the whole, if you have connections between, you know, commuters, that's not just the city, you know, so like Portland, Mm -hmm. Oregon and Vancouver, Washington are part of an statistical area, even though they're, they cross state lines because it's kind of like there's a lot of connections. Yeah, I live in the Chicago area and it kind of goes on forever. But uh, uh, here's uh, Brian Etling has this question. Just curious if Dana and Kristen have personally taken advantage of the incentives of the IRA. And um, what are your experiences? I mean, I personally did all of my electrification before the IRA was passed, so I didn't get to. Um, like the one thing I have left is I still have a, a gas stove and still so my, for my cooking, I use one of the small induction burners just for myself. Oh. Um, like my wife has an attachment to the gas stove that I haven't been able to, <laughs> to separate her from, but maybe <laughs> at some point, if we can qualify for some rebates, maybe we'll, I can convince her someday to transition to a better stove. But in the meantime, I'm just using the one induction burner by myself. You need to That's take fun. her to a cooking demonstration with an induction stove there. Great. Um, yeah, we we got an induction stove without you know the incentives aren't available yet, but we have a we have a son with respiratory problems, so we prioritized um, taking yeah. care of that. And the water heater, we have not yet done our furnace, our HVAC system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, fortunately, I'm a laggard, so maybe I'll get to take advantage of some of that. I need a, an electric oven, wall oven. Still have the gas stove though, but uh, important to have um, adequate ventilation if you, whether you have a gas stove or not. Uh, and I, a few years ago, I put in a high efficiency gas furnace. So, damn. <laughs> uh, all right, let's see. Um, some more questions about landlords, which have been answered. Hmm. Well, I don't know if there's a good way to answer this. How would you advise residents in a state or locality where electric bills are very high and natural gas is much less? And usually the uh, the, the um, contractors advise you to stick with uh, stick with natural gas. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of things to say there. Like um, there's, you know, other than financial considerations there's also the health and the climate considerations um so especially if you're talking about the stoves then again there's the indoor air pollution to worry about and of course if you're worried about climate change then you know there's a lot of good reasons to electrify your home even if you know local gas is relatively cheap and then there's also the fact that uh, gas prices as i showed are very volatile so they might be low right now but in the future that might not be the case whereas your electricity prices are going to be relatively stable over time hopefully even at some point go down as we install more cheap solar and wind energy. Um, so in the long term, like it may, it may seem like the right idea right now for you're just from a financial perspective to keep your gas appliances, but in the long term, that might be the wrong decision. So uh, there's also that consideration. Do you have any other ideas, Kristen? Yeah, so certainly that calculation is very sensitive to the gas price, and you do not know if that gas price is going to be the same. Like, in fact, it's a very good bet not to assume it's going to be the same as it is right now. Um, then I would say, if you have the option to do rooftop solar, and you know you can do it with zero cost down with these, um, you know, like 
uh, loan agreements um, that can cover a lot of your electricity costs. And then you should look into if your utility has any options for different rate case rate options. So if you're on a flat rate, that's not going to be great, but you could if your utility has like a time of use rate, you might be able to then like shift your water heater and your dryer. And if you have an EV, your EV charger to the lower cost and it will, you know, be less than what you're paying now. Um, and do I have one more thing? And then I guess like if your utility does not have those rates, go and tell them. <laughs> That's a whole other um, place for advocacy is the utility rates can make a difference in how attractive these things are. Right. Yeah, so that's yeah, that's good advice because like I'm in California on PG&E where we have pretty high electricity rates, but I do have like a time of use uh, plan. So like I have an EV, so I only I don't charge my EV during the peak hours because that's when the rates are higher. And so that is a good way to kind of at least make up some of that uh, discrepancy. Yeah. Uh, Laura Smith has an interesting question. Is there any limit on the number of times you may apply for a given rebate or credit? For example, if you move. Can you apply for a particular upgrade in your new home again? I mean, certainly the tax credits, um, the ones that reset every year, you can, if, if you move homes, then now, now it's a new year, you're in a new home, so you can apply mm -hmm. those tax credits again. I'm not sure about the rebates, though, do you know, Kristen? This is a good question, because the rebates, there is like a cap, there's a, a lifetime cap per household, but does that follow you as a household, or does it follow the address it'll probably depend on each state's <laughs> right so yeah um, the state tracks this like, is actually good i'm gonna i'm gonna write this down try and figure yeah. this out it's <laughs> a good question yeah yeah we got some smart people on this uh on this call uh let's see here's a couple that have been answered this will, this one, sorry this will need to be our last question we're almost at time Oh, okay. Uh, let me see. Uh, well, uh, let me see if there's a good one here. How can I learn about, let's see. I think a lot of these questions could be answered just by uh, looking at the, the links that you provided. <clears throat> On which provisions of the IRA Infrastructure Act does our State Depart of, Department of Commerce set the rules? Can you generalize? don't know if that's answerable. I mean, they're mostly state energy offices and not commerce. Yeah, I don't, there's, I mean, so there's the rebates all go through the state energy office. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's like separately federal WAP funds go through either like the state housing or the state energy office. I don't, I can't think of anything that the state commerce office decides for mm -hmm. this. WAP being weather resistant weatherization assistance yeah. program. Yeah, the federal mm -hmm. weatherization program that is implemented by states. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we can't get to the other 45 open questions, but please put them in the nerd corner on community and we'll see how we how we can do in uh, knocking them out. So thanks for thanks. thanks, Kristen, for spending some of your Sunday with us. That's very generous of you. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure talking to people from CCL. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Right. I guess we're all done. Thanks, everybody. Hope you enjoyed the conference and good luck with your lobbying this week. And yeah, if you have any questions, come to the forums, come to the Nerd Corner and ask them there. We'll be, we'll do our best to answer them.
Thank you. Bye, Kristen. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.